This podcast is an exploration of decentralized information networks, secure computing, and autonomous software. Technologies that enable new global information networks, collectively known as the Third Web. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. The range of third web platforms in development today is greater than ever. From data-centric blockchain-based approaches to agent-centric designs like Secure Scuttlebutt, the potential futures of the third web are rapidly expanding. Today we look at another approach with the Urbit platform. Like Secure Scuttlebutt, Urbit is agent-centric. It's a deterministic operating system designed to be the filter between a user and their online services. I last covered Urbit in 2016 and the project is now nearing public launch. Galen Wolf Pauli explains. Today on the Third Web, I'm joined by Galen Wolf Pauli of the Urbit Project. Uh, Galen, could you tell us what Urbit is? Sure. So the short answer is that Urbit is a personal server. And the longer answer would be that Urbit is a secure computer that you actually own uh, that stores a complete event log of everything that's ever happened to it that's designed to live on any cloud server but be controlled by a private key that you own. So your Urbit is meant to replace all of the sort of consumer cloud software that you already use. So what differentiates Urbit from uh, other platforms? How can something, how can Urbit be so much better than all of this extremely expensive and um, and well-funded software that's been developed over the last 30 years? Well, the short answer is that it definitely isn't today, but it should someday be better than, than, than what we've come up with over the last 30 years. So the basic thesis is really that, you know, everything we use today uh, runs on top of a Unix of some kind. Um, Somewhere underneath every web app is, you know, a, a sort of tiny, sad Unix appliance running somewhere. What we've done in sort of web two, or, you know, for really from, the mid-90s until now, uh, is figured out how to get these giant appliance mainframe-like computers that were designed in the 70s to act like uh, personal computers. So in order to, I mean, as, as many people know, right, like if you want to build Twitter or you want to build Tumblr or whatever, the first thing you got to do is get a server running somewhere that actually where you compile and put together a bunch of software, build a user interface. And then, you know, once you've actually built something that people want to use, you've got to keep those servers running and you kind of inherit the nightmare of, of also taking care of all of their data. So the Urbit thesis is really that the reason that we ended up in this weird centralized world of, of cloud-based software is because... Unix is way too fucking complicated, and the only way to build stuff on top of it is to build even more complicated messes of software. And our approach is just to basically rip out everything between Unix and the user. So build one system, which is Urbit, very simple, very compact. So Urbit in its entirety is about 30,000 lines of code. That's a whole virtual machine programming language and operating system. Uh, that replace what you would find in something like, say, WordPress or Twitter itself, which is who knows how many uncountable lines of code that is. But say WordPress is something like half a million lines of code, and the Unix kernel is many millions of lines. So 
our thinking is basically that you know technical simplicity should turn into user interface simplicity it means that we can produce something that's much more tightly integrated that's nicer to use um, and that of course cuts out the middleman you no longer have to depend on other people to run your cloud software for you what do you mean tightly integrated that's a good question. So we were just talking about an example. So right now, in order to develop this thing, we use GitHub using Git. When we want to get things done, we use Asana. Uh, honestly, who knows why? Because we couldn't find a better option for task management. And I think most open source projects have this problem of figuring out how to um, share issues or share tasks between things that happen in Git and on GitHub and on some kind of task management software. The reason that those things are completely separate is because they're also completely separate applications. And so you have kind of this mess of API connectors, uh, kind of works, but that stuff never really seems to work very well. So in an urban world, one thing we've been <clears throat> thinking about building for ourselves is basically just integrated task management that works right alongside uh, the code that you're working on. So you can have commits or branches uh, that are directly linked to issues. And when code gets pushed to something, you'd see updates in uh, in a sort of task or project management system um, instead of only seeing those on GitHub. So it's kind of a trivial example, but you can imagine lots of ways that uh, it would be nice to integrate what are otherwise uh, siloed pieces of software. You know, Urbit comes from, in some ways, I feel like this very... Uh, the intuition that in the early days of the web, it was really cool that everyone ran their own servers. And there was this kind of magic to everybody has their own computer, which is an open-ended general purpose thing. And all of these connected general purpose things have the potential for lots of unexpected things to occur between you know disconnected parties. And so We've come to live in a world where everybody uses the same software, everybody uses things that are sort of tightly controlled and um, uh, sort of very single purpose. And so part of, you know, when people ask, well, what exactly is Urbit for? It's like, I mean, in some ways, the point is to just uh, create a new world in which you can really return to this state where many things are, are possible and, and like a new world could even sort of be imagined. I mean, it's both the good sides and the bad sides probably are, are, are sometimes a little bit even like hard to reason about. We just don't know exactly what it will be like. So with that said, I mean, what do you feel like the urban future would look like? Yeah, fair, <laughs> fair enough. You're like, you're telling me you don't know, but uh, you should tell me anyway. But let's, uh, hear, yeah, <laughs> let, let's hear it anyway. <laughs> uh, it's a fair question. So I think that... Um, the thing that, so I'm, I'm a designer, right? I, have, I have a design background, uh, I went to architecture school. So I think that the thing that I am the most excited about, uh, the thing that I um, really, really look forward to is really just uh, interface standardization. So when you, you know, bought a Mac, before we used our computers like glorified web browsers, there was really a thorough interface standardization throughout the OS, right? It's like everything had the same look and feel. It felt like it was part of one system. And so what I really look forward to is being able to have my messaging, document editing, um, you know, document sort of collaborative document editing, uh, code collaboration, task management, 
any, you know, any, you can imagine all these uh, categories of consumer software that right now I feel like I have to flip between different interfaces that are really bloated. I don't really, uh, they're, they're for the most part, really not very enjoyable to use because they're built for huge swaths of people. Uh, having those all more or less look the same or be under, um, you know, within one design language, that's something I'm like very, very excited about. Um, but but do we need do we actually need a new back end to achieve this new front end? I mean, couldn't that just be? Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, like a, um, for example, we WeChat's done this, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. So, and we can sort of tie these together. The second thing would be uh, maybe the marriage of like privacy and durability, right? So, there's always this sense for me when I'm using, especially when I'm using Gmail. So Gmail houses so much of my own personal record, right? All of the communication or so much of my communication happens over email. And I think this is true for a lot of people, but you know, does, do I really trust Google? I mean, seem like good guys, but you know, I don't know, might go away. So uh, being able to run a server myself that I uh, trust will last forever, or at least a very, very long time. um, And that I trust is secure to me uh, makes me feel a lot better about this kind of like world of complete standardization. So in the case that you give, like in the WeChat case, which kind of is, in my view, is is from a design standpoint, like a super interesting achievement. It's really, really nice to use. Apps are more like modules. You can live within the one world of WeChat. It seems really, really cool. But the trade-off that you make with that kind of centralization is that you've now given sort of all of this power to a single company. Uh, you know, everything that you do, if you live in a WeChat world, uh, lives with with WeChat. So, uh, you know, the decentralized WeChat pitch, uh, I feel like has gotten a little bit tired. Regardless, we're still in that. <laughs> we're still in that club to some degree. Um, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I think that's a great goal. And I think that's definitely that that's like, I think it's reasonable to think that the, the, the sort of future of consumer cloud computing does look like that. It just makes no compromises about sort of privacy or durability. The the thread I'm getting here is that we can come up with a unified backend and a unified frontend for individuals. So in the same way that WeChat provides this standard interface for its users, the uh, part of your perspective as a designer looking at Urbit is this idea that an, an individual could define their interface standard and then applications would naturally conform to that standard. Yeah, that's right. So instead of me going to Facebook or to Twitter or to Google Docs or to what have you um, and having them deliver the interface to me, um, it would be much more like installing a desktop application where, you know, some applications make uh, modifications to your standard sort of UI kit. Uh, But for the most part, what applications do is they modify, they like allow you to operate on data in some unique way. Um, and they don't make, for the most part, they use like a, a sort of common sense set of interface components because for the end user, it's much nicer to sort of feel like you're living in one universe. So the the comparison that I often make or like, I think just intuitively to me, uh, this is like, your, you know, sort of like your computing environment should feel more like your physical environment. So, you know, individuals have different styles. They have different ways of arranging their homes or the kinds of furniture that they like or whatever. But when we figure out our physical environment, you know, it's it's reasonably easy to do that. Like the modules that you pick from in terms of buying furniture, picking, you know, a color for the wall and so on are, they're sort of tractable. Like it's it's like they're they're the size of choice that you're that you're comfortable making um, versus right now you have this trade-off between effectively like 
a trailer or like a hotel room or, you know, something off the shelf that I'm going to live in all the time um, versus I, you know, basically build it from scratch. Like I'm a Linux sysadmin and um, I built my own home literally by myself. Like uh, I pounded all the nails on my own and sort of that, like that trade-off today seems completely sort of unfair and unrealistic. Right. So there's this idea that you can have a, um, you can have your cake and eat it too, in a sense. You can have your independent back end, your personal front end, and um, and customize those to your specific needs. Sure, yeah, certainly. So, I mean, to be clear, it's like people who work on Urbit full-time like would ideally put be able to provide something of the quality of UI kit, sort of like standardized look and feel, something on par with you know the WeChats of the world. But if you want to sort of uh, change that, modify that, when you're changing the look and feel of Urbit, you're changing the look and feel of all of the apps or agents that you run um, on on your Urbit. Okay, so now we're actually so we've basically this whole time been essentially talking about the interface, and this is a bit like or the uh, the overall interface. This is a bit like talking about the way uh, Windows looks or the way uh, Linux looks. Linux is a great example where you have a whole bunch of different interfaces um, that are applied to this under a similar underlying kernel. So with that with that vision described because i think people can get a hold of that what is the advantage of using this over um existing cloud software uh you know existing cloud platforms and how is it possible that it's simpler to use something um designed freshly um on a much much on much fewer resources than the um and i would presume than the 30 years of resources that have been poured into uh, designing the this these immense cloud backends. Okay, let's see if I can unpack this one. So, the basic question is: Okay, if we take if you get, if people t- can accept what I'm saying, you know, we're going to deliver to you this you know very uh, clean, unified, uh, beautiful interface experience. Well, why is it that, that our sort of particular breed of strange technology can can do that any better than than sort of like the uh, you know what you can grab off the shelf today? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, you're talking about thirty thousand lines of code. Yeah. And how many people work on Urbit? <laughs> in the, I mean, community, not sure exactly, but you know, in the, less than fifty. Um, right. I mean, versus literally hundreds of thousands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who have yeah. poured their time. <clears throat> well, so important to remember, we're not replacing. You know, Urbit runs or Arvo, the Urbit operating system, runs on top of Unix. So we just have a very formalized relationship to an underlying platform, which is very you know battle tested, right? Unix and the internet, TCP/IP and UDP, like that. That's all part of uh, Urbit sort of takes that for granted, right? We take the existing infrastructure, we try and build a new layer on top. So what we're sort of antagonistic towards in some ways is really like the web stack. And I guess I would say that Urbit is actually designed for an individual to use. It's designed for individual use in a way that like Node simply is not, nor is Python or any of, I mean, not that these are, they're, I actually have, I have no problem with Python or JavaScript. Like, there, it's not really a, an issue with the technology per se. It's simply that it's built for something else. So, to give an example, or to maybe get uh, only maybe only mildly technical, but your Urbit operates in a way kind of like a personal blockchain. So, the state 
of your orbit is a fixed function of all of the things that have ever happened to it. So this idea that you would have um, effectively just like a state machine that computes the current state of your computer, and the idea being that that the entire event history that led up to that point could be, you know, everything that sort of ever happened to you, every, every a whole, you know, flood of biometric data and all of the data that you create in writing and publishing and all the data that you create through all of your devices and so on and so forth. Like, I think that just uh, conceptually or, or sort of architecturally is uh, much better suited to or is suited for a paradigm of personal computing that even the desktop actually never really captured. So in a way, if you think of Urbit solely as like basically a hundred year computer, this is something that I think really just doesn't exist and has never existed. And so, and even then sort of conceptualizing what you would build on top of that, what that would look like, what that would feel like to use. We're in like just categorically different territory than what, uh, today's is sort of industrial uh, software is is built to is built to support. Hmm. Okay. Um, who is the target user? Because as I hear you describe this, on the one hand, we talk about interface standardization, which is something that the consumer can grasp and grab a hold of. But at the other side of that, a user doesn't expect to customize their own interface. They'd like a professional designer to do that for themselves. And in addition to that. This sounds like it would take a new skill set in order to develop for, in order for someone to de- who was used to developing for traditional uh, computing environments to develop for uh, Urbit. Yeah. So, well, to be clear, it's like we hope that I mean, even probably later this year, like your experience of using Urbit is on par with using an existing web service. Like using Urbit is not a um, uh, does not require any special skill set. And, and in some ways, the sort of emphasis on design and usability is because, you know, get, sort of getting people control over their own computing is not um, not aimed solely at a technical community. Like, ideally, you want you want everybody to be able to do this and to sort of appreciate the difference all the way through to the look and feel. There's always this thing where people, like, the gold standard is like, do you invite your mom or does your does your mom, you know, does, <laughs> somewhere it's always like your, your parents or their friends. I don't, I don't think Urbit is built for my parents, uh, but the question is more like, would I send Urbit maybe to my cousin, right? Or what point do you do you send these things to your to your cousins? Like, like now you could you could tell your cousin about about Ethereum, right? For the maybe you could at least tell them to buy to buy ETH or something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think that Urbit should be able to clear the bar of, hey, you should get an Urbit address. You should try to sort of chat and hang out on Urbit uh, soon in the, in the next in the next year or so. I think that what the what Urbit is Urbit is most exciting uh, to people who are somewhat technical or either on the one hand they're sort of like interested in system software because Urbit is a very unusual system software and so Urbit's really fun to experiment with because it's its own language it's its own virtual machine there's a lot to learn about this whole sort of alternate universe of computing and then I think even just for the you know the 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 kind of microcultures that exist on Urbit of like small, small communities of people who use Urbit to communicate with each other. That's sort of super fun and, and strange uh, and interesting. Urbit is still, it's still early, but uh, it's certainly usable and it's been sort of usable and live and running. I mean, we've run a test network since 2013 where you could always sort of come and hang out and chat and, and experiment with hacking on the kernel and stuff like that. So if we would look, uh, turn to enterprise, do you see there being an enterprise application for Urbit? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, the one thing I've thought about a lot, and I guess actually other people have, I'm always skeptical when there's something I'm obsessed with thinking about and no one else cares. 
<laughs> but yeah. luckily, this is something that other people seem to get excited about too. So, actually, we met. Uh, I, I met someone who works full time on Urban Now through a blog post that he wrote about um, decentralized agriculture, how, how sort of Urban or Arvo affects decentralized agriculture. So. In the ag world, uh, one of the things that farmers hate is basically uh, stuff that they can't hack on. In the, and not they're not necessarily hackers, but like they can't if you can't open up the hood and, and sort of tinker with the thing, it's sort of against the ethos, right? You, I own my farm. I want to be able to control my tools. And so one of the problems with uh, a lot of the technology that's being deployed in the world of agriculture, that's not the case, right? It's a it's this typical approach to um, building Internet of Things stuff. So of course I can't like crack open my nest. I can't even figure out, you know, I can't even connect my Nest to a different server. Most IoT stuff is is really extremely closed. That's true on the farm as well. And so the, the one interesting application of Urbit is basically Urbit runs its own network. It's layered over UDP. Um, we can get into sort of how that works, but an Urbit instance or an, an Arvo instance, really, like a, an instance of the Urbit OS, also runs its own sort of private network of devices. And so the Urbit OS can run applications and shares a file system with other devices on the network and can execute code, do anything a general purpose computer can do, and is also connected to a network, is a nice thing to be able to run on a connected device that's out in the field, um, where you could even potentially be running that over simply like a local network at the farm itself. So you can imagine you, the farmer, actually fed your keys into those things like you have you own them cryptographically you know you have complete ownership over the data you don't have to let some third party basically man in the middle you about uh, what's going on at your farm you can extend this the one thing i've i've I always thought about this in the realm of basically industrial automation and, and and building factories uh where i would imagine that the stack for doing that um still kind of lives in this old unixy world and is and is pretty messy and complicated uh, that's not something I'm quite as like just natively sort of professionally familiar with, but I think it's super interesting. Like I do think that large scale IOT coordination is something that Urbit would be extremely good at. Yeah. And I suppose in addition to that, yeah, the, the big, I, I think of, um, I think of, uh, the whole scandal around John Deere and, um, and how John Deere owns the software that right. runs on the John Deere engines. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. I mean that, that it's really it's bizarre. I mean, I used to work on um, on boats that used to use those engines. And the other weird thing is, John Deere collects all of that information, right? So right. essentially, they can um, they they could be secretly mapping your own farming practices if that's a John Deere tractor or or anything, right? And I mean, admittedly, this isn't um, this. It's not like there's a fear that John Deere is somehow going to like turn around and steal your farming practices, right? But there's this more general fear that your IoT devices are collecting extremely granular data on your activities and that data uh, inevitably will be leaked and used for malicious purposes. Right, yeah. So I think of it basically in two ways. So a lot of a lot of that data I as even as someone like sort of less technical than than myself, I think would I would probably have fun having direct access to. Like there are interesting things that I could I could do with it or would want to, I, I, it'd be interesting to be able to inspect it more deeply than most of our IoT devices allow. And then I guess the, the sort of um, when it comes to the sort of connectedness of these things, I mean, you know, it's one of these tough, it's like, does, uh, is Google in fact not evil? You know, is John Deere not, yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe it's fine that we give them the data, but 
it'd be actually, I don't think they care about who I am. I think that it would be much better if I knew that it was completely pseudonymous and I was submitting that data in a way that I knew was secure or I had some uh, visibility into the either into the source code or I had some sort of cryptographic guarantee that when I submit this, it's basically anonymized. Like I don't mind sharing what's going on for the purposes of uh, research or for them to effectively optimize the things they deliver to me. Um, but I would prefer not to have that be able to be leaked and leak information about me personally. So one of these I think is I've, I've often <clears throat> over the last couple of years made this argument about gen- about genomic data, about people's genomes. And so you've seen over the last couple of weeks, this evidence of basically 23andMe sharing data with law enforcement agencies. And it's like, look, whatever your opinion of the state, like it's a little unsettling that, you know, you shared what is pretty personal data with a large company, you don't know exactly what's going to happen with it. But on the flip side, I mean, genomic, like research in that area is super, super interesting. So it would make a lot of sense to me if people could effectively, you know, you store your genome on something like an Urbit or something like an Arvo instance. Um, And then when you want to, you allow a researcher to basically send you a program that does some kind of, you know, does some evaluation of that data and then sends back the results. For example, I'm sure there are other, you know, other schemes you can imagine, but basically like you never have, there are many ways in which you don't actually have to send the data itself. If you live in a world where the individual actually can control the device, run the computation themselves, like in fact, you know, own their own computing. The other thing is, and this takes us into some uh, some really interesting territory with other startups like um, Data Republic, which is based in um, Sydney. And their their whole problem is that due to up and coming data protections, it's very hard to um, understand or, or conduct deep analysis of data held by multiple parties or that's been given to multiple parties uh, without exposing the individuals involved in that data. Whereas these... Um, Whereas Data Republic has developed a way to blind all data, but still allow computation to take place on it. It's a bit like um, this holy grail of homomorphic encryption, mm-hmm. but well, there's like it's ring- mechanically achieved. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, just like the, I mean, using ring signatures and similar, like you can do these kind of like really intensely pseudonymous um, uh, ways of obfuscating the source of something, basically like that identifier in, in a, in a data set. Um, which is, yes, yeah, sort of super interesting, super promising, uh, very unlikely that like Nest or Fitbit or whatever is just going to like sort of do that for fun. So with, with that all said, how do you achieve this? Can you tell us a bit about the networking? And, um, and you know, I don't want to go too deep because we've, we've had extensive discussions about this in the past. Uh, once in 2016, I know you've also yeah. done an episode of um, Epicenter, which I would suggest that listeners check out. Um, but could you tell us just a bit, give us like an overview of the, um, of the, uh, of the networking and the way that individual orbits communicate with one another. And then also, um, let's take a quick look at the application stack. I think the easiest way to think about this is effectively in this azimuth Arvo distinction. So azimuth is the orbit, um, identity system. Azimuth is actually a system of Ethereum contracts. The simplest way to think about an azimuth point, which is a single identity, um, is it's similar in a way to maybe the combination of like a domain name, an email address, and an IP address. There's a finite number of azimuth points. Um, each one is, you know, in, in essence, just a number. 
we uh, provide a pronounceable representation of that number, um, sort of synthetic pronounceable strings. And so those uh, those points, those addresses are distributed in this sort of para-decentralized um, para way. So at the top, you have 256 galaxies that issue the next uh, 65,000 stars that issue the next 4 billion planets, and then planets issue the next 2 to the 64th moons, where the idea being that the top level of galaxies is effectively the Senate because they, they vote, in fact, very practically vote on chain to upgrade that system of contracts. So if we move to a new system of contracts, that requires sort of a, a majority of the galaxies to agree on that new uh, contract address. Uh, the stars are sort of like network infrastructure, and planets ideally are for humans, and moons are for devices. So you have at the top two to the eighth, the numbers are otherwise hard to remember, you know, it's two to the eighth, two to the 16th, two to the 32nd, two to the 64th. All of the nodes can move, so they can re, you can, you, do, you aren't trapped under the address that issued you. But we do use that hierarchy for routing. So if two planets want to talk to each other, they go up through the star, up to the galaxy, and then down, depending on you know uh, where in the topology the other uh, peer is. So that's our um, that's the addressing system, and I suppose that's also the network structure and the routing. Yeah, that's right. I I end up uh, so that the routing is actually not contained in those contracts. Those contracts just say who owns what. Right. That's all there is. They're transferable on chain. They, you're assignable on chain. They don't require Arvo. In fact, they could even be used for another network. You could use it just simply as an identity system. It's like a live mainnet identity system for whatever. We happen to like using it for Arvo, the Urbit OS. And in the Urbit OS, you need to have an azimuth point to uh, boot an Arvo instance. By default, we use your parent to um, do peer discovery. So we don't, your parent doesn't like proxy all your packets. Uh, but they do help you find other nodes on the network. There's another um, there's another point here, right? And that is that you're using Ethereum, but you're using it as a registry rather than as a computing platform. So there's those contracts exist, but what they really allow you to do is assign ownership of a or assign control yeah. of a specific entry in a registry. And what is really interesting about this, I think, and this is, I guess, a bit of a closing thesis on um, on some of this technology, is that uh, Ethereum has proven itself not as an application platform, which is what it was billed as back in uh, during its original conception, but rather as a uh, a flexible and dynamic international globally available registry. And this is something that's never existed before, and this makes it very useful for Urbit. And I presume that Urbit would, you know, would be reliant on centralized services that would potentially lead to um, damage to the network where they controlled if Ethereum did not exist and wasn't uh, and wasn't usable for the purpose of setting up this registry. That's right. So we originally, I mean, uh, before you know, Urbit's been around for quite a long time, and originally um, the idea was actually to have um, basically key updates propagate through the network itself. And so Urbit would effectively, uh, you know, hold this, you know, we, we talk about azimuth points as almost like digital land. And so it's sort of like that land registry would just be shared within the Urbit network and it would sort of function as its own um, effectively self-validating blockchain. Or I mean, there's no, there's no blockchain, but that the, that the registry would just be continuously updated throughout all of the nodes running on the network. And I think what we found um, after Ethereum became really widely adopted was that bootstrapping this from a blockchain 
in a way allow i mean in some ways the the, the best part about it is simply that you know ethereum um <clears throat> you know while it has its uh its faults. It, it does appear to be secure. I mean, the EVM is not being broken while there may be, you know, sort of problems with solidity. So <clears throat> we can sort of take this entire layer of the system and we know that it can run securely on Ethereum, which is fantastic because you have the, you actually get a very clean layer separation where like Urbit naming is actually just this one complete system. You can kind of like rip that out of the operating system, which probably is, it, it, it's actually kind of like a nice, elegant, clean separation. So what you do to actually link them is simply register a public key. So an azimuth point just has the public key that you use as your networking key inside of Arvo itself. But uh, once that is set, then sort of Urbit just looks to that land registry and says, hey, this person says that they're Ravma Reptile. It does and they're using such and such a public key. Is that exist on the blockchain? And if, of course, you know, if that's validated by the blockchain, then you're good and you're sort of authenticated. So this also, this uh, this routing system also maps into a uh, essentially a global file system or a global storage system as well. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So Arvo the OS is uh, a file system, um, a system for building applications, a web server. A networking protocol, which is routed over UDP, uh, a vault for secrets or kind of like a keychain, and a build system. Think of them as kernel. There's individual kernel modules that provide you know, effectively things that are probably mostly familiar from the web stack. It's sort of like web stack on gigantic um, steroids you've, you've never seen before that are also like very uh, sort of refined or, 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 or um, I don't know, they're super clarified. And that's it. I mean, that's more or less the whole system. That that whole system is written in, then there's a kind of core kernel that manages the interactions between these components. That's all written in a language, a, a custom language or a language for the system, which is called Hoon. And that all runs inside of, <clears throat> or or compiles down to sort of a kind of urban machine code or think of it like assembly language, knock, which is the, the sort of single deterministic function uh, uh, that your Urbit executes every time it gets an event. Okay, so we've we've wrapped this whole thing up and a bit of a bow here quite nicely. <laughs> I, I, I think we have. I think I think we've got it pretty well distilled. And that's actually in a pretty short amount of time. That's in about 40 minutes. That's like so, that's, that's my whole job, by the way, is actually <laughs> getting getting many, many the, like decades of work to basically be explainable in less than an hour. Mm, so let's see. So how do you intend to make money off this? Who makes money off of it? <laughs> Who make many, many, many different people is the short answer. <laughs> um there, there are two separate questions. So, or, or there are two separate ways of speaking about it. In a way, like I technically am work for a company called Tuan, which is the primary company that sort of builds Urbit. Um, there are many other people involved in Urbit who are completely outside of uh, outside of the company. Some of whom are contributors who've been around for a long time. Some are who uh, who are you know bought address space a long time ago. Some who won address space and different computation or competitions and so on. But the short answer for the community writ large is that as Urbit becomes more useful, the address space is finite. And so as finite assets tend to do, it becomes more valuable. Um, so people who own galaxies sell stars or maybe sell the galaxies wholesale. Um, the sort of general economic kind of paradigm for as the azimuth network uh, uh, um, as a whole, as I said, is really like real estate. So it's kind of like owning swampland that someday might be Manhattan. And now I feel like it's a little bit closer to like, 
you own some farmland and other people have farms on this on the plane you know it's it's like gone from being a total jungle to uh, to being actually somewhat inhabited so sort of broadly urbit in general is uh is you know people in urbit make money by uh, by owning and selling real estate and then potentially by selling services you have to run these nodes somewhere and one would guess that you know that hosting services um, application development services stuff like that will probably exist later which is very much what you know the company exists both in some ways almost like as a real estate investment trust uh, we own a bunch of urban address space we own less than half I can't remember the exact number right now but it's all public uh, you can look in in the in the um, you can you can basically look at azimuth.network and see and then eventually we you know in order to facilitate people using urbit we would provide provide hosting provide services make um, you know provide the on ramps in, into urbit itself you said that uh, you guys hold about half of the address space recently curtis yavin who was the founder of this whole project he left and did i read correctly that he signed over all of his address space to talon uh, he gave us all of his voting rights so um, we, as I mentioned before, the individual galaxy. So a galaxy issues 256 stars per galaxy. Sorry, the galaxy actually issues 255 stars. The 256th actual node is the galaxy itself. You can think of it like you have a large tract of land. You divide it into parts and, you know, one of them is, uh, is the galaxy, but they're all the same because they're all simply the ability to start an Arvo node. The difference with the galaxy, of course, is that it can vote. We took back custody of, of the voting galaxies, uh, but he kept, uh, cust- or kept ownership of the, of the contained stars. Um, which are some okay. of which, many of which actually are locked up. So the, a lot of the address space is actually locked up and unlocks over the next uh, four or five years. Wrapped up in all of this is a bit of an answer to a riddle, and that is how do you develop and structure a completely independent computing network that, as you said, is the 100-year computer? And I, as we've just talked about, this mechanic where... Uh, Curtis was able to able to give up um, the galaxies, the voting nodes that were related to the stars, which were the uh, the nodes below those, uh, or, or the nodes contained by those uh, registered to those voting nodes. On top of that, we've got this extremely simple um, operating system and uh, and virtual machine, this basic scripting language, and we're using Ethereum as the uh, the registry for ownership. And uh, and for for routing messages and for storing the owners of uh, of particular nodes. So this sounds like a pretty well structured and well thought through platform, but I haven't heard of anything else even remotely similar. I mean, the closest thing I can think of, and that doesn't include a virtual machine or anything like that, is the um, social network Secure Scuttlebutt. Yeah, Secure Scuttlebutt is great. I wish I understood it better. I had a fantastic conversation with an SSB person, like an extremely long and in-depth one that really made me think I would finally, you know, actually, I think after that I booted it once, but I didn't, I just don't have enough time to, I I wish I had more time to sort of play with and engage with other things. SSB is really, it seems really, really cool, but especially just as a community, you're acting like an investor. Investors ask me this question all the time. (laughs) Like, you know, what's your competition, right? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, historically, you know, like IBM didn't try and create a PC until they saw VisiCalc, right? And then they effectively were were able to crush it because of their uh, access to you know these enormous resources to pour into this. Um, so I think that 
if we are successful, even moderately successful, our uh, biggest risk is someone that like with basically enormous resources, um, because there's so much potential value in sort of moving humanity to a different computing platform. That if it seems like we can, even even there's you know, I mean, our chances of success, I feel like, have been going up. <laughs> you know, the orbit matures; it seems more likely that it's going to work. Uh, but it's certainly not to the point that anybody is like worried about us. But I think when that happens, our biggest competition comes from people effectively with really, really deep pockets. I think that the one thing that's really different about Urbit um, as a sort of whole system is that the attitude is not to be a single network, but to be a network of networks, meaning that, that we've been kind of lightly explaining or talking about this idea of kind of like archipelago of, of, of individual communities. And I think that even on <clears throat> other somewhat similar decentralized social platforms, we are still imitating this um, kind of one size fits all model from the sort of present world, which for anyone who works in this, uh, in this in this environment or in this sort of ecosystem should think of as the old world of like one size fits all social media, right? So, so people today, when you go to engage with a community, even on, on Twitter or something, you know, anyone else can sort of show up out of nowhere because everybody shares the same place. <clears throat> and so I think that to me, it feels like an absolute inevitability that the world for many tens of thousands of years was, you know, basically small communities of people who had no overlap with one another. I think humanity is not really set up to um, all coexist all at once in one single, you know, uh, in like Mark Zuckerberg's blue um, dystopian uh, blue. city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, you know, Facebook blue is like truly... With a flag that's just a thumbs up. Yeah, man. Uh, this, yeah. Um, I mean, good for them. You know, I get like lots of people are willing to... Con- say, okay, maybe. I feel like that's like, uh, you know, you got 2 billion people who are like, okay, maybe. Like, <laughs> But it's really not, no one's enthused yeah. about it, right? Uh, and so I guess when it comes to like who's, the, 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 the ultimately the problem that has to get solved in the next sort of tier or, or like next uh, set of, 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 I mean, the next, you know, computing paradigm is, is how to get basically the way that people compute and the way that people compute together to better match the way that people actually communicate in the real world, form communities in the real world, interact in the real world. And I'm uh, completely not convinced that the way that we do that now is even remotely close. And just to, uh, if you'll allow me to finish the point that you were making, yeah, sure. in order to, um, to map the way that we interact in the real world, into the digital world, we have to be able to define the tools that we use at a very granular level. Right. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's often something that I end up uh, reinforcing a lot to uh, the people who, look, who, who work together here is that what we're trying to, we're, we're trying to make it possible for people to imagine how these interactions should occur or how, like what these applications should look like or what these, how these agents should work. We don't really know, and we know that it doesn't look uh, sort of like it would in the real world, or like we, you know, it's, it's like we we know these things don't map quite right. But the real question isn't can we say the right could can, you know can we the authors decide the right way? 
That I don't, it's more like, can you figure out how to get communities themselves to find all of the possible permutations of how we might communicate, how we might compute together? And that to me feels like a vast territory that is basically unexplored, right? It's like you have like five companies who have kind of sort of shown us some cool things, maybe, but also that don't work in many other ways. You know, it's like software should be bespoke to the group of people who use it. And you need a system that can make that iteration cycle very quick, very simple. Um, and if we can deliver that, then I think, yeah, sort of humanity can go about solving the problem of what exactly do those specific use cases or those specific um, uh, sort of like tailored experiences, like what do those actually look like? So where can people find out more about Urban? The simplest answer is just urban.org. <laughs> uh, urbit.org. Yeah, everything's pretty much there. Thanks for listening to The Third Web. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow on Twitter at The Third Web, or visit thethirdweb.net for episode notes, further episodes, and also filmed interviews.